Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. This is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. Now, if you'd like to follow along with us, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. And we also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. If you're jumping in with us today, you can start on day 211. And as a reminder, if you have any questions that you would like for us to answer, you can email them to info at grove.church, or you can direct message the Grove Church Facebook page or Instagram. Uh, just make sure you title it, you know, a Let's Read the Bible question. Otherwise, it'll kind of just get buried in other stuff, or it might get answered in text and not on the podcast, and that's no fun. Uh, but this week, listeners, beloved listeners, this is a special podcast because this is the first time we've had a replacement guest co-host. We had a third co-host on an episode a couple years ago because my brother was in town and that was super fun. But uh, this week, Aaron is on vacation and we were thinking about how can we try and record four in one week. And then we looked at each other and realized that's just going to be painful. <laughs> so we decided, you know what, we need some co-hosts in here. So let me introduce for the first time on Let's Read the Bible, Hunter Shaw. Hello. And he is the worship pastor here at the Grove Church. And I don't know, Hunter, is there anything else you'd like the, the fine people of the Let's Read the Bible podcast community to know about you. Of the people who listen to this podcast. Um, <clears throat> let's see. My wife and I have been at the Grove for the last almost three years. What's today? It's July. Oh, three years a week ago. I nice. haven't been paying attention. Um, we live here in Marysville now, which we're very excited about. Um, and we're super happy to be a part of this community here at the Grove. And uh, yeah, that's about it. And being at the church helped you slightly overcome your fear of heights. So that was... Oh, no. It, oh, it's still there? No, it's just just an acute overcoming of that fear. <laughs> so if you don't... So Hunter was hired when during COVID. So we were doing rooftop church, the drive-in thing. Uh, and I, I felt really bad because no one said the first week that we had to climb up on the roof. And so, but it was incredible growth. The first week you weren't really feeling the ladder, but by the end of rooftop, you know, you did a great job of hiding it, I guess, at least if you no, were still not I, enjoying it. <laughs> The uh, um, the first week that I, I came to do an interview, uh, I was up on, I went up the ladder and uh, we it, we had four gatherings still at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, both Joy and Heather, Nick's wife, were, were making fun of me because I, I was always okay when they'd go down to get coffee between gatherings, when they'd go down the ladder to do whatever. Uh, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm fine. I'll, I'll hang out here internally, just like incredibly scared of going back down the ladder because I'm very afraid of heights. But I did I did mostly get over it, but I'm still afraid of heights. Hey, a little a little bit for me too. But actually that that season of the church helped me a great deal. I'm not afraid of flying anymore, which I think is kind of associated with that. Not really? the same sensation, but yeah, for whatever I used to like I could not, I shouldn't say could not, but I I was terrified to fly. Uh, and was it then, the turbulence or like what part of the feeling did you hate the most? I think just the knowledge that I was that high up. But it was... See, that doesn't bug me. For me, like every once in a while, turbulence will make me... Turbulence sucks. Just make you, you know, tense up a little bit or whatever. Because, I mean, the plane is literally dropping like 50 mm -hmm. feet sometimes. Our friend, uh, our friend Jeremy gave me really helpful, gave me something really helpful where he said, basically, if something's going to go wrong, it's the first 
two minutes in the last two minutes. Yeah. It's like, once you get past there, he's like, it's pretty much like nothing ever goes wrong. I was like, that oh, is absolutely true. That helps me out. Well, this isn't an aviation podcast. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So let's get into, uh, Hunter, glad you're here. Thank you. Uh, and so let's get into our readings this week, starting in Jeremiah chapter two, verse 23. Kind of a weird spot to start. We're not in the beginning of a chapter, but you know, that's the way the plan is. And listeners, we are loyal to the plan. We will follow it to the letter. Uh, So as we begin our readings this week, we find ourselves in the midst of God going after the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, at this point, they have already fallen. So he's kind of just talking about the remnant uh, that is either remaining in Israel or the diaspora that's been scattered by the Assyrians. Uh, And he, you know, one of the themes of this chapter is getting after the hypocrisy of saying that they are clean and then running to worship the Baals, which is kind of a problem all throughout Israel's history where they're just like, yeah, I love Yahweh. He's the best. Also, have you seen these hundred other gods that I can sacrifice to? So not great. Um, I particularly love this line that's repeated. It's a, it's repeated a few times throughout the Old Testament in one way or the other, but this is uh, God speaking through Jeremiah saying, but where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble for as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have transgressed against me, declares the Lord. Um, I, don't know. I love the part of the Old Testament where God is finally so fed up with the idol worship that he's like, why don't you just let them save you? You know, what? I'm done. I'm going to hands off. Let's see what happens. Why don't you let your, why don't you let Baal or Ashtaroth or even, you know, Molech, who's the worst, why don't you let them save you? And you know what, listeners, they don't. They don't, as we saw by the fall of Samaria. Uh, in chapter three, We see Israel called to repentance, uh, and this mirrors the eventual call to repentance of Judah after Jerusalem is destroyed. Um, So this is after Israel has been punished. They are given the opportunity to be brought back into the fold. Um, And we also see God really going after Judah. And and so I should should specify, when I say going after Judah, I mean in a bad way. (laughs) And so Israel's out, they're in diaspora, and God invites them to repent, come back, and essentially say, like, you are still my people. And this is one of the big themes of this part of the prophetic books is the punishment at this point is inevitable. Um, In Jeremiah, there's no opportunity to repent and escape the fall of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem is completely going to happen. But that doesn't mean that God is cutting them off and he's no longer there. And we see this in the exile, right? With um, Daniel and Esther, particularly, we see the stories of how God still looks after his people in the midst of them being in foreign lands. And this is what's happening with Israel right now. Um, But God is very upset with Judah. And originally it's because Remember in the, in the history of Israel and Judah, Israel is the northern kingdom, but kind of right off the bat, they go straight to idol worship. Like there's no good season of Israel. Jeroboam the first is like, ah, forget about it. And then they kind of go in, into a bad way. Um, and so God is angry with them because they should know the law. But he's even more angry at Judah because they have the Davidic line of kings. They have Jerusalem. Um, they should have all of these things. And they see the fall of Israel because of because of their sin, because of their idolatry. And that doesn't change them. So remember, Israel falls during the reign of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is one of the great kings of Judah. But right after Hezekiah, we see Manasseh and we see Ammon, who are two of the worst kings of Judah. And this is right after Samaria falls 
the people of Judah don't take a lesson from that. Uh, and so this is Jeremiah chapter three, verses nine through 11. And it says, because she, t-, and when it says she, it's talking about Judah, uh, because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Uh, so sorry, the first herd there was Israel, and then Judah is the sister nation there. And you see that. It's, it's interesting because when you look at the history of Israel and Judah, Israel's worse by, <laughs> by almost any measure. Uh, they they never have they never have an upswing. They never have like their best king is probably Joash, who's not even like a good king. He's just like the the not worst of the worst. Um, but God is more angry with Judah than he is with Israel. And I think part of it is just the fact that they get some more chances. They have the better kind of setup to be able to actually worship God. And then they have these high crests and then they just fall off a cliff continuously. So it's it's a bummer. Um, as the chapter goes on, Jeremiah looks forward to a day when both Israel and Judah will be brought together under the Lord. As we move into chapter four, we see the destruction of Jerusalem being foretold. Jeremiah shares that there will be disaster coming from the north, which as we, if, you know, spoiler alert, that's, that is where the Babylonians come down from, uh, and that the people of Jerusalem will should flee. And we see in Lamentations and when we get to the Kings and Chronicles that the destruction is the worst in Jerusalem, and that's probably where the lowest amount of people actually survive. The people who are able to get out of the city have a much better survival rate, and that would be people like Ezekiel's group. Yeah, Ezekiel's group uh, who go into exile a little bit earlier uh, as opposed to the people who stay in Jerusalem, which is kind of a bummer of history in general. Like anytime Jerusalem falls, if you're in the city um, looking at you, AD 70, it's not – It's I don't know why we're laughing about cannibalism, <clears throat> but you know, what a bummer. What a bummer 80, 70, 80, 70 was. Um, but if you stay in the city, it's, it's going to be worse. And so even here, Jeremiah – or God is warning people through Jeremiah – you know, flee when this is coming. It's not going to be good for you. Uh, and then a couple of scary highlights from these these passages. Verse 23, it says, I looked on the heaven and behold, it was without form and void. And I looked to the heavens and they had no light. Um, or essentially it's it's God using the imagery of before creation. So, in, and we've talked about this before, but in a lot of the... Um, the ancient Mesopotamian myths of creation, it's about the gods forming the world out of chaos. And so when we're reading in Genesis, it's, it's essentially God saying, I did that. Like that wasn't, that wasn't all the other gods. That was me. And so here it's almost saying that the world has reverted to the chaotic form that it had before God entered into creation. Yeah. Um, I, interesting note about the, the form and void. I've heard some compelling arguments uh, that the uh, a, a better translation of the Hebrew there for to, tohu vavo, vavo, ha, tohu vavohu. You just got to say it confidently. Can, trust yeah, you. yeah, yeah. <laughs> tohu vavohu um, would would be wild and waste. Ooh. So that even more uh, kind of harkens to that idea of chaos. It's this chaotic world, and and Israel and Judah's sin have have brought about that again. It's like Jeremiah pointing back to, or yeah, we're in Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah pointing back to this this wild and waste pre-ordered, God-ordered world. I, I love wild and waste too, just because there's alliteration in English and it sounds way better, yeah. but no, that's cool. I did not know that. 
Um, verse 31, and this is, it, it says, for I heard a cry as a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. Um, I think that's just such a horrifying picture. Essentially, it's God saying, this is what you're going to hear when Jerusalem finally falls. Um, and as someone who just experienced the pain of a, I shouldn't say experience, but watch someone go through the pain of their first <laughs> childbirth. That sucks. <laughs> like yeah. that's not. Oh man! Like that was the worst I've ever felt for my wife is uh, in, in those moments, and comparing that pain to essentially the pain that the whole nation is going to feel is a very poignant picture for sure. In uh, in chapter five. God's case is laid out against Jerusalem and particularly their refusal to repent. Uh, There is this passage I thought was interesting when we think of another famous Old Testament story. So the whole point of this part is that Judas had plenty of opportunity to repent. Again, they've even seen the example of what will happen in Samaria if they don't. Uh, And then in verse one, it says, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and take, look and take note, search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks the truth that I may pardon her. Um, And I couldn't help but think of Lot here where (laughs) he wants to spare, um, Abraham is asking God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah and he keeps whittling it down. And eventually it's just like, just just find one righteous guy who's not Lot and we'll be fine. And then all of a sudden he's like, no, you can't. Um, And in Jerusalem, it's, it's, it's very sad. Just like we, we read just a little bit ago, how the world has kind of reverted because of Judah's sin to its pre-creation form of wild and waste. Uh, now we see that Jerusalem is no better than Sodom and Gomorrah, which God also wiped off the earth because of their sin. So it's, it is really sad to see just how far God's people have fallen in these chapters. Uh, As we finish chapter six, it will feel very familiar. Uh, Once again, the theme is looking forward to the destruction of Jerusalem, a fate that the people seem to think won't ever actually come. Uh, And that's where we're going to leave off Jeremiah for now. We'll go back to it later. Don't worry, listeners. But uh, for now, we're going to see if... uh, We're going to see if it stays bad all the way through the end of Judah, or maybe if there's a dead cat bounce of righteousness. Um, Yeah, let's talk about King Josiah. (laughs) So we're going to go back to the book of Kings, uh, chapter, so this is 2 Kings, chapter 22, and verses 3 through 20 is our passage. And we're going to go back to kind of cutting in between Kings and Chronicles here. So uh, I'll use the Kings as kind of the baseline story, and then I'll tell you when Chronicles, if it's basically the same, I'll just tell you it's basically the same. And if there's differences, I'll point them out for why they're important or why they're interesting. Um, But as we jump back into our narrative portions, we find King Josiah really coming into his own. So he's 18 now. Remember, he took the throne at eight. Um, And if you ever met an eight-year-old, you realize that, yeah, they're not ruling anything. (laughs) So he is the king, uh, but there's figureheads who are above him, or not above him, but they're ruling in his stead until he he comes of age. He's 18 and he's begun his reforms. Uh, And one of the things he wants to do is repair the temple. The temple had fallen into disarray because Manasseh and Ammon were the worst. Uh, And so Hilkiah, the high priest, then finds the law. Um, And this passage is always really interesting to me because it, it means that they lost it. Yeah, yeah. like and it was like between Hezekiah, who is a great king, and they're following they're following the law at least at least nominally, and Hezekiah himself is a righteous man. Uh, so between the death of Hezekiah, who is Josiah's great grandfather, and now they've just lost the yeah. law. Like they like put the scrolls in some back room and just forgot about them. And I guess. well, and, that, and that's see that's what's crazy to me because it's not just that they like they put it away; it's that they're like, oh, huh, what's this? 
The, yeah. It's the, like, they didn't even know it was a thing. Oh my gosh. It, it just goes to show how like, how absolute the failures of Manasseh and, and, and to a, I shouldn't say to a lesser degree, but he just was only around for two years, Ammon, uh, were that this happened. And it also shows, because remember, Manasseh does repent at the end of his life and he commands the people to worship Yahweh. And so we can see that clearly part of that was not the law. It's just kind of a generic, no, this is our God. Remember that. Go worship him. But there wasn't, we, we can assume there wasn't much direction as to how to properly do that. Uh, and so Hilkiah finds the law and Josiah is distraught because he he reads the law and he's like, we're doing none of this. Like, this is awful. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so he, he, yeah, he enacts even more reforms. He petitions God for what he would have them do. And, and God's answer is really bittersweet. Um, and so this is Second Kings 22, verses 18 through 20. And it says, but to the king of, sorry, this is God speaking, but to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Um, and so again, Josiah gets, and it's, it's Almost similar to, um, no, no, it's not similar. (laughs) So remember Hezekiah is very, he's told that the root, that ruin is going to come, but he's like, ah, well, at least it's not going to happen while I'm alive. Um, and you get, and God gives the same answer to Josiah, Josiah, particularly, and we see this, um, I forgot the passage where it happens, but it's specifically said because of Manasseh, because of the sins of the reign of Manasseh, there's no going back. Jerusalem is going to fall. And so the hope that Josiah has is your reign is going to be peaceful. You're, I shouldn't say peaceful, but your reign is not going to involve the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, you're not going to live to see that. And that's kind of the one thing that Josiah gets. And for me, I don't, I, I, I've always thought about how hard it would be to be king in that, in that moment where, and again, sometimes like sometimes we just, we've read the Bible so often we go through this, we go through the stories that we don't actually take the time to think about what it would be like to be in these situations. Uh, but to have the destruction of your nation looming over you um, and to know that your sons are basically doomed. Uh, and I like to think if his sons weren't the worst, not they weren't the worst, but if his sons were they're pretty bad, yeah, they're pretty bad. Um, but the, you know, they're no Manasseh or Ammon, but uh if his sons were also as zealous for the Lord and worshiping Yahweh the way he should be worshiped, I, I would like to think that God would have kind of kept delaying the fall of Jerusalem until finally like someone, a king came along who deserved it. Um, but we don't have to wait very long for that. And then Josiah just, he, it, it's, it speaks to his character for me that he's going through all of the trouble to enact these reforms uh, and still earnestly worshiping God, knowing that it's not going to make a difference in the long run. Um, in the short run, it will, which is great. But in the long run, it's unfortunately going to Jerusalem is still going to fall. So I, yeah, it speaks to his high integrity that he still keeps with it. Um, the Chronicles passage is pretty much identical, um, but we're giving a list of men involved in the repair of the temple. So if when in Kings, when you read 
these men were repairing the temple, if you want to know their names, Chronicles. So there you go. And when you can meet them in heaven one day and ask them what it was like. Uh, in 2 Kings 23, starting in verse 1 and through 20, uh, we move back in and we see Josiah. He just goes ham on all the idol worship. Uh, he swears a covenant before the elders of Judah to keep the commands of Yahweh for the rest of his life. And all the people join in. So really cool, really cool moment there. And then he just, he tears down and burns every high place that he could find. Um, He deposes every priest who ever made an offering on the high places. And he even tears down the altar at Bethel that was erected by Jeroboam the first. So Josiah's not messing around. And it's interesting because he goes further than any other king of Judah before him. Uh, And even again, I, I keep comparing him to Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a great king, and he did not go this far. Um, Josiah is going to purge the land of idol worship, um, as at least as at least as much as possible. He can't purge the hearts of the people, but at least he can make it almost impossible to engage in idol worship, and that's what he's doing. Uh, and then in Chronicles, we get this extra bit of story about how the covenant in Jerusalem went down, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, and so remember, in Kings, it kind of just says he swore a covenant before the elders, and then it goes to him destroying all the high places. In Chronicles, we see what it looks like. So this is starting in verse 32. It says, then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord all the days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Uh, and you know, that that's a big statement because <laughs> that is that is not the case with almost any other king in either Israel or Judah. And so the fact that it says that about Josiah is, is great. Uh, going back to Kings. Now, uh, this is interesting. We are told that Josiah reestablishes the Passover, which apparently had not been observed since the day of the judges. Uh, and this is one of the things I love about doing this podcast and just reading through the whole Bible every year is you just pick up things on that you missed. Yeah. I never caught this before. I didn't that, either. Yeah. So the last time we see a biblical leader do the Passover is Joshua. Um, And we're not told that's the last one, but it's in the days of the judges. So in the generations following Joshua, that is apparently the last time that the Passover was observed. Um, And so, and I, and I would, I wouldn't say this is no individual ever observed the Passover. I would assume that that happened, but as a corporate worship event, yeah, yeah, it seems like this didn't happen, which it's nuts to me. It's (laughs) it's weird imagining David. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's who came to mind. I was like, David was awesome. We didn't do the Passover. I was like, he's great. Great king. If we were, are we including um, unified kingdom in our yeah. tier list? So oh, okay. it, it starts with Saul is the first king that we ranked. Oh, okay, cool. So, but none of those guys. Because I mean, David, easy first place, but like, yeah. it's one of no it, Passover. It's one of those things, man. It's one of those weird things. So, but Josiah is the, so Josiah is the first, right. and I believe I, I, it's not a stretch to say the only king, because I, I would imagine his, his heirs do not <laughs> observe the Passover. Uh, Josiah is the first one who yeah, wow. who does it. So there you go. Uh, and we are told in that passage that there is no king like him before. Yet the fall of Jerusalem was unavoidable due to the sin of Manasseh, which we've already mm-hmm. talked about. Uh, in the Chronicles passage, as we would expect, uh, it gives us details about the Passover. Remember the, the difference in context. Kings is most likely written as we go. Um, so not one author, yeah. but as the king's reigns kind of end, their chronicles are brought together and then put into the book. Uh, whereas the book of Chronicles is probably written by Ezra 
or at least it's post-exilic. Uh, yeah, and, at least and probably a couple hundred years. Yeah. Right. And so we see uh, it very much is looking back on the golden age of Israel and saying, hey, we need to get back to this. We need to get back to the way that we worship. And so we always see in Chronicles when there's a moment like this, a moment of big corporate repentance, it's going to describe... Here's how it went down, because this is how we need to make sure that we're doing it as well. Here's exactly what all the Levites did and all the clans and things like that. Uh, and so we are told that Josiah contributes, he sacrifices from his own wealth, which is a great thing. So he's not just kind of bringing it from the nation in general, but his own personal herds are used for these sacrifices. And then we're told that the Levites, uh, they do everything exactly by the book. And by the book, I mean the law. So when they observe the Passover, this is a straight up, we're, we're going back to the way this is supposed to be done. And that is where we leave Josiah for now. So we're going to get into some of the prophetic books that are going on here. But don't worry, listeners, we'll we'll jump back into Josiah with some of Hunter's readings Chronicles, a little bit later. Right? Wait, where are we? Chronicles? Oh, we're jumping into Nahum yeah. is where we're at here. Um, so my joke with Nahum is that it's the prophetic book that Jonah wished he could have written. <laughs> so remember that Jonah, he hates the Ninevites. He goes over, he's angry that God is showing them mercy. And his book is about the mercy of God towards uh, non-Israelites, which is incredible. And it, it kind of heralds the... Fulfillment of that in Christ, where God's mercy is shown to the entire world. Uh, Nahum is not the opposite, but it's about the destruction of Nineveh because they've earned it. Let's be honest, listeners. So, um, yeah, God offered Nineveh mercy before in the time of Jonah, uh, but their actions not long after show that it's been it's been revoked. Uh, and we can even see in history there is a there is a, a blip where Assyria kind of chills out for lack of a better for lack of a better word um, and it, co- it it aligns with when Jonah would have been doing it so we can see it even in history that they you know there's like a generation where they're like hey okay let's chill out uh, and then good old King Sennacherib takes the throne and he's like no it's our divine right to conquer the world and he just and he gets pretty close or at least the known world at the time uh, and I brought this up last year but look up a on on online look up a map of the Assyrian Empire under Sennacherib, because it's actually incredible. They basically, he basically rules all of Mesopotamia and there's a tiny dot in Palestine that is the kingdom of Judah. And it, it shows just how miraculous God's protection for Judah is that essentially the entire, not the entire known world, but that entire region has been conquered by the Assyrian empire, except for just this one little kingdom that holds out. Um, but sorry, getting back to Nahum, uh, we don't know much about him, except that he's from Elkosh. And we don't know where that is, but we think maybe it's in Judah. So there you go. If you if you want to know, it's the minor prophets. If you want to know a lot about them, you're usually going to be disappointed, uh, except for there's a couple where we get a little bit more. But Nahum, we just know his name and his town and maybe where his town is located, but who knows. Uh, chapter one of Nahum begins with the passage that would be uh, terrifying to read. Just imagine reading this as the Assyrians, um, particularly if you're an Assyrian who actually has seen what God can do and you're, you know, you can fear Yahweh, which hopefully at this point, you know, he's done a lot of miracles. You can maybe take the hint, uh, but it starts off with the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Oh, that's a great passage. Ouch. But yeah, like uh, if you if you needed a count there, the word avenge or vengeance is used three times. And it's the in the first three lines, it's very clear that even as God allowed 
for the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Assyrians are kind of his instrument in making that happen. They don't get off scot-free. He's not letting he's not letting them get away with it. And he's like, nope, you did it, but I'm going to take revenge for my people. I love the reminder here too. Um, even though this is such a harsh passage and is very clear about the, the vengeance and wrath of God, um, it, it reminds us that he's slow to anger. Yeah. Because a, a lot of the stuff we're seeing Israel and Judah and the surrounding nations do, I mean, while Moses was up on the mountain, they're already building idols. <laughs> you know? It did not take them long. Yeah, it didn't take them long. Um, and a God who wasn't slow to anger would have, I mean, would have given up right there, would have, would have judged them right there. He's like, you, you literally see this mountain on fire. <laughs> yeah. You, you followed this pillar through the desert. Like you see me move, you see my power, you saw me part the Red Sea and you're already worshiping a golden calf. This is like, you know, <laughs> like um, yeah, imagine, immediately. <laughs> imagine walking through the Red Sea and a month later, not not yeah. only, it, it, sometimes I, 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 I want to give the people of Israel sometimes a little, not a pass is the wrong word, but understand uh-huh. that they're coming from a universally polytheistic culture, which yeah. means that like everywhere around them, they worship multiple gods. So it, so I, I sometimes understand, even though it's wrong and it's sin, I understand the instinct to add more gods onto Yahweh, and they view Yahweh as their chief god, but not necessarily the only god. And uh, when they're failing, when they're doing great, they view God uh, as the one true God. Uh, but it's not just that they make idols; it's that they say, "Behold, this is what delivered us out yeah, of Egypt." Yeah. So it's it's not even just adding on, like, "Oh yeah, this cow." We also, you know, he, we add him in there as well. It's like, "Oh yeah, Yahweh, who's that? Uh, this cow, he delivered us out of Egypt." The mountain is still on fire right oh, next my, to them. Oh my god. Gosh, the Israelites. Yeah. But that's, I love that reminder that the Lord is slow to anger. Because <laughs> yep. I mean, that, I mean, that, that's speaking here to Nineveh, like this took a while. Yeah. Like if you're receiving the good, the judgment of God, it, it's because you deserved it. <laughs> well, and, and you see, yeah, Nineveh receives grace uh-huh. and they eventually reject it. And so God, uh-huh. like God is, yeah, like you said, God's not just demonstrating that he's slow in anger. To Israel, <laughs> he's yeah. trying to be slow to anger in general. Like yeah. this, yeah. And I, I think it also reframes into um, this is off topic a little bit, but that's okay. I think sometimes one of the struggles that we have as as modern as modern Christians is the way that God uh, commands the Canaanites to be treated when uh-huh. when the Israelites move into it. Uh, and I think because we because we look at it and it says burn the city, kill everyone, leave no one alive. Uh-huh. Like to us, that's that's horrific as we read that today. Um, but it is a reminder here that God is slow to anger, um, and that's not like one thing happened and he's like, you know what, take them all out. Like we see that the people of Canaan at this point are engaging in child sacrifice. Yeah, they're doing, murdering their own kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they're doing all these things, and that we while while Israel was in exile in Egypt for four hundred years the Canaanites are kind of earning the destruction yeah. that's coming. So it, it, yeah, it, it helps reframe a lot of the more difficult passages of the Old Testament, I think, when we remember that the refrain that God is slow to anger does not just apply to Israel, mm. it applies to everyone. And he loves mercy. It's true. As Jonah reminds but us. he's also a jealous and avenging God. Oh man, Nahum, what a book. What a great <laughs> book. Uh, and then also I thought that this was an ironic term of fra- turn of phrase. We talked about this passage last week in Isaiah and it's repeated, or at least the the idea of it's repeated. 
uh, behold upon the mountain the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, and never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Uh, so in this case, the feet of the, or the person who's bringing good news is bringing news of the destruction of Nineveh. So kind of a funny, just like a funny little connection point to what we read last week. Uh, chapter two of Nahum des- describes the coming destruction of Nineveh and how God will glorify Israel and Judah through this. And then chapter three starts off with a nice woe, uh, you know, woe to Nineveh, and it doesn't get any better after that. Uh, and this is probably the main highlight that I, I took out of this. Uh, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink away from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Uh, And so what God's getting at here is, again, imagine God himself saying, I'm against you. You're not getting out of that. And then it's not just that Nineveh is going to be defeated. It's that they're going to be humiliated. It's that the nations are going to look at how quickly this happens and how quickly the empire falls and that they will become a laughingstock, uh, which is quite a thing to say, because at, at this point, the Assyrians are the most powerful nation in this part of the world, and it's not even close. Um, and I don't know enough about what was going on in China and India to say if they were the most powerful nation in the world, but they, they were close regardless, right, of whatever's going on here. Um, and yet they're going to fall quickly, which is what's going to happen. If, you, if we look at history, Babylon is kind of just a small city state um, that is under the thumb of the Assyrians for most of their history. And then they just kind of rise up and take over. And so Nineveh, well, Assyria, and then by extension, Nineveh does become a laughingstock through this. So that's Nahum. Like I said, the, uh, it's, almost, it's entirely concerned with the fall of Nineveh and how they deserve it. And, uh, you know, Jonah, I like to imagine that Jonah in heaven is kind of smiling a little bit about oh, with no. with some sort of satisfaction. I don't think so. You don't think so? <laughs> no. I, I guess it all so. depends on if Jonah learned his lesson or not. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get to Habakkuk, uh, who is a very, who's another very interesting minor prophet. Um, this book is kind of a, it's kind of a Job in miniature where it begins in a very similar way where Habakkuk cries out to God and he's, he's looking for answers. And he, in this case, he wonders how long God will allow Judah to continue in their sin. So he looks at the sin of the people. He looks at the state of the nation and he's like, God, how long are you going to let this happen? Um, and just like in Job, the answer is not what Habakkuk expects. And just like in Job, God actually answers him audibly, which is pretty cool. Uh, And so this is God's first answer. He says, or at least part of it, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that would, that you would not believe if you were told for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Um, and this can be a little bit confusing, but when we say Chaldeans read Babylonians, it's just kind of another name that they're referred to as, um, yeah, so <laughs> that happens a few times today where there's like, there's m- many names that True. all mean the same thing. That happens with kings later. Oh, yeah. It, oh, the kings. <laughs> there's a bunch of them where it's just like a bunch of different names. Yeah. But um, yeah, so 
Habakkuk is crying out and saying, God, how long are you going to allow this to happen? And God's answer is, oh yeah, don't worry. The Babylonians are coming and they're going to destroy everything. Uh, and so this is obviously not the answer Habakkuk yeah. wanted to hear. Uh, and his his question, and this is what I love about the, the difference of tone and how God kind of treats these men differently. Because both men are, wait, they, they're essentially saying, wait, God, you can't do that. That's crazy. Uh, and with Job, God is like, okay, put on your big boy pants and let's talk about this and just rips them apart for a couple of chapters. Uh, and then in Habakkuk, God is much more gentle. He's just kind of like, no, 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 don't worry. Like it's, it's going to be okay. So it kind of just shows the difference between how God is dealing with these, <clears throat> with these situations. Um, so again, Habakkuk questions how God could allow such a wicked people to be the instrument of his wrath, um, which is the same thing that happened with Assyria, right? Like for as bad as Israel was, Assyria was worse, maybe not by much, but they were worse. Uh, and for as bad as Judah is, Babylon is worse. And so Habakkuk is wondering, how can you give our land, our, our promise over to these people? Uh, and so he says, this starting in verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer of eyes than to see evil, who cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man who is more righteous than he? Uh, and one thing that stands out there is I, I, I think Habakkuk shows a little bit more humility than Job, which might be the difference in God's answers to them, but I'd have to like actually really go back through and look. So, but that's, that's just an offhanded comment. Maybe take it, take it for what it is listeners. Uh, so God reveals in chapter two that the Chaldeans are not just going to get away scot-free. Uh, so kind of similar to Nahum, right? Where it's about how Nineveh is not just going to get away with destroying Israel. Uh, Babylon is not going to get away with what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And he makes it clear that after he's used them for his purposes, they are going to fall just like the other nations. Uh, and so after having his questions answered, Habakkuk is he's in wonder at the fact that God took the time to reach down and answer him. Uh, read chapter three. It is just a beautiful picture of Habakkuk rejoicing in the glory of God as revealed through the fact that he took the time to even answer these questions. So it's it's really it's really cool, um, and he spends the entire chapter extolling the glory of God. And he ends with this powerful statement. And these are the last verses of Habakkuk. It says, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the yield and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And then if you're curious to the choir master with stringed instruments. So that's, if you want to play that, that's how you play it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's Habakkuk has just been told that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, that Judah's going to be overrun by the Babylonians. And yet look at how he responds. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation or essentially God, I trust you. I know that this is right. Uh, and again, just like it's kind of a Job in miniature, he arrives at the same place that Job does where I don't fully understand why this is happening, but I trust you. And I know that this is right, that you're doing it. So there you go. Habakkuk. One of my, one of my favorite little books of the old Testament. It's awesome. Uh, and then finally for finally for me, and then we'll get into Hunter's sections here, uh, we're going to kick off Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah is really interesting because he seems to be a descendant of King Hezekiah. 
uh, which is incredible given the pedigree of the other descendants of Hezekiah. So, hey, one of them, <laughs> one of them didn't turn out so bad. Uh, and so he, he has some kind and this is, this also could just be another man named Hezekiah. So we don't exactly know how all of this is going to go. Um, but what it seems like is happening is that has, it's one of the lesser son, I shouldn't say lesser sons, one of the younger sons of Hezekiah who doesn't ascend to the kingship. Uh, and so Zephaniah probably is of the Royal family in some way, but not in the line of the Kings or anything. Uh, and his book begins with the pronouncement of the judgment of Judah. Uh, this is later described as the day of the Lord, which remember, if we remember back to Amos, uh, it doesn't always, you know, it doesn't always mean what you think it means yeah. to quote, uh, to quote a princess, the princess bride. Um, while Judah has been complacent, assuming that this day will be great and that Jerusalem will stand forever, uh, they're in for a rude awakening. And it's, it's kind of funny because for us today, we view the day of the Lord. And when we're talking about that, we're often talking about the return of Christ and, and the uh-huh. the ushering in of the new heaven and the new earth, which is the great hope of, uh, of us as Christians. So it's important to remember that when we're talking about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is, it is usually referring to a day of judgment. Uh, and then sometimes the people of Judah are looking forward to the day of the Lord because they're like, oh yeah, that's when God's going to judge all the other people. And they don't realize like, no. I mean, he's gonna mm-hmm. he's gonna judge you as well, uh, so kind of a little bit of a little bit of irony there. Uh, and then as we begin chapter two, we'll see some of God's judgments on the surrounding nations, but more on that in a second. Uh, first, we want to do we do want to take a moment to ask you to leave a five star review if you've been enjoying the podcast. It really just helps it get it out there to more people uh, and continue to grow this community of people reading the Bible together. Uh, There's two places that are super helpful. If you could leave a five-star review on Spotify or Apple podcasts. And if you leave a review on Apple podcasts, they let you, they let you write one. So if you leave a written one, we'll read it on the air just because, you know, it's the kind of guys we are. We like to give our, we like to give our listeners a a shout out. So there you go. Uh, If you wouldn't mind, we would love for you to leave that five-star review. Uh, So Hunter, what else is going on in Zephaniah? What else is going on in Zephaniah? Uh, Zephaniah is a, uh, he's prophesying in, in poetry. You see this, um, like most of the, prophets. like most of the prophets, <laughs> but, uh, he, he's got this, um, what, penman, I guess you could call it Baruch. Um, this guy who's writing all this stuff down for him in scrolls and compiling all this poetry, um, that, that we have here. Uh, he's mostly prophesying, like you said, about the coming day of the Lord, uh, which represents an enactment of God's judgment, but at the same time tends to represent a, a realization of his coming mercy. Uh, we see that both in the Old Testament version of the day, the day of the Lord and in the New Testament. That's true. Uh, eschatological end times. Uh, sorry, big word. End times. That's all that means. A version of the day of the Lord. It, it does represent perfect judgment and and beautiful mercy at the same time, even though it's not fun while it's happening. Uh, verses 2, 8 through 3, 8 are about God judging not just the kingdom of Judah, but the surrounding nations. It kind of focuses on the whole, the whole area there. Uh, and God is using Babylon, obviously, like we talked about, to judge the nations. Uh, in verse 3, 8, I think we, we begin to get some implications beyond just the immediate coming judgment of God's people in the surrounding nations, but an allusion to this ultimate end times day of the Lord. Uh, obviously, there's a ton of that in Isaiah, right? Right. Um, I think we get a good amount of that here in Zephaniah too. Just some, some small details that I think point to that. Um, 
Oh, this is 3.8 here. Uh, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed, which I think is an allusion to... Obviously, it's it's this this call to the, the the passage in it was in Habakkuk, right? The the wild and waste that the, was in to, Jeremiah. No, Jeremiah. Sorry, um, of like the the earth will look pre-creationed, pre-ordered in a sense. I think it also calls to this actual destruction of our earth and and the new heavens and the new earth. We'll talk about how the heck that works here in just a second. Um, but then we get to, to 3, 9 through 13. It's about God using this day of judgment to purify his people and remove the prideful from among them. Again, I think this has kind of a multi-tiered fulfillment. Well, I guess just to interject, because we're talking about multi-tiered fulfillment and, and these things. I think yeah. It was a couple weeks ago we talked about how there's passages in the prophets that are revealed uh, or that, that are fulfilled by God in the Old Testament, like we see, uh-huh. you know, like the fall of Jerusalem. I mean, all great. of this mostly is. Yeah. And, yeah. But, the, but then there's also, it, get, it can get kind of confusing as we read it, because there's some of it that's fulfilled later on outside uh-huh. of the Old Testament, and we see it fulfilled in the New Testament. And then there's even some, like you were talking about, the ultimate day of the Lord, which we would today know to be the return of Christ. Uh-huh. Um, some of that gets fulfilled, hasn't been fulfilled yet, even thousands of years yeah. later. So the prophetic books, are ve- they're very layered in that sense, where sometimes there's one prophecy that is even fulfilled three times, which is kind of, yeah. or, or will be fulfilled three times. Sometimes even done. more, I think, yeah, I would argue. Um, in, especially in the New Testament, but as as we read scripture in general, there's this, this general sense of what we call the now and the not yet. Um, specifically, we use that terminology to talk about, to talk about kingdom theology and salvation mm-hmm. theology in the New Testament. Um, Jesus says there's a kingdom that is, that is here now, but there's a kingdom that's coming. So this language is, is true of right now. Like when he talks about a kingdom, there's a kingdom right now. There's a kingdom that's coming ultimately. Same thing with our salvation. Like we're saved. We're being saved. We will be saved. We get this, this, there's the now and the not yet. We read biblical prophecy that way too. Like you were just saying, there's always an immediate sense of this is applying to a thing that's happening like right now, or it's about to happen. There's a sense of how this is fulfilled in Christ. Uh, there's a sense, sometimes there's a sense of how this is fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. True. I think we yeah. get a little bit of that. That was another day of the Lord. Um, and then there's a sense where it's fulfilled ultimately in the return of Christ, like you're saying. So I think we get that here, uh, here in, in, a Verses three, nine through thirteen, or uh, sorry, eleven, like second half through thirteen. Uh, it, it, in Zephaniah, it says, "Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave with you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down." and no one will make them afraid. Um, that can't, I mean, maybe it's for the generation directly post-exile, but it can't be ultimate. Like right. it says never again. 
And like, like you said, yeah. I think some of it is fulfilled in the sense of when you see the people of Israel return, return yeah. from exile, uh, they have they have effectively killed idol worship. We never see that yeah. come up again. Um, and even in the time of Christ, for all the failures Absolutely. of some of the Israelites to uh, to recognize the Messiah, they're not worshiping other gods. <laughs> like they, yeah. they are. So some of this is fulfilled in the sense of that's that's been put to death. But you're right. Like the idea that uh, they will they will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found among their mouths. Well, that's not true. Uh, uh-huh. And so you're, I think you're, you're correct in saying this probably points forward to the ultimate day of the Lord yeah. and, and the fulfillment of all of us being gathered uh, to Christ in the new heaven and new earth. Yeah. Which is so cool to read just oh, how, how scriptures, the, all these layers to peel back. All right. So we get to verse three or sorry, chapter three, verses 14 through 20. This is about uh, the return of the people of God to their land post exile and the restoration of Israel after the day of the Lord and their judgment. Um, We see the beauty here of God's judgment that it purifies the land and the people and ends up being a vessel for God's mercy. Uh, We get all of this harsh judgment language. And then we get this in verse 13. The Lord, your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Which to me is just such a, it's a nice comfort in the midst of all of this insane, like the world is going to hell, literally. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it it is beautiful that it's. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of like when after like I would get punished as a kid for doing something wrong. Yeah. Uh, like my mom or dad would always be like, "Hey, I still love you. Like you're still my you're still my kid. Like no, you're gonna have to go to your room, but we're okay. Like that's you know what I mean. Uh-huh. It's like God's kind of doing that. Where hey, this is gonna be awful, but I'm still I'm still yeah. gonna save you. I'm I'm still with you. I'm still your God. And and I think sometimes we we can paint the picture of. God cuts off Israel or Judah uh-huh. never happens. No. He's simply allowing them to be ruled, to be conquered. Um, and obviously the covenant, not, not the, the covenant's not going to change. The way that they fulfill the covenant is going to change. Uh-huh. Um, but God never stops being their God, which is a, which is a beautiful thing to be reminded of uh-huh. for sure. That's, that's kind of it for now for Jeremiah. We'll jump back into it here in a couple places. <laughs> after this, after the big side. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the way I'll kind of go through the, the Chronicles and the Kings passages is I'll, I'll kind of explain them as one passage and maybe let you know where they're different because it gives you parallel passages in the reading. So it, mm-hmm. it kind of, it's two versions of the same story, um, which if you haven't talked about it, it or you did a little bit earlier, Kings is, is more of as we're going. Contemporary. We're right. Yeah. And then Chronicles... Um, in the Jewish uh, rabbinic tradition, uh, it was at the end of the Old Testament. Like it was, this was a final thing and it was written much later. Uh, in ours, it's obviously not at the end mm-hmm. of uh, the Old Testament, but in the uh, the Torah, it would have been at the end. And it was basically a, a short summaration, summaration, I don't think that's <laughs> a word, a summary uh, of, of the, it starts with Adam, you know? Yeah. But its focus is obviously um, more the historical side of of Israel. Yeah, right? Chronicles is kind of the whole history of God's yeah. people up till that point, uh, and particularly about the failures. Yeah, of, the failures of, of the kings. Of yeah. yeah. Um, but we start out in Second uh, Chronicles thirty five. Uh, 20 through 27 is where the reading starts. And the, the parallel passage is in 2 Kings 23, 29 through 30. 
Uh, here we have uh, Pharaoh Necho. Is that how you say it? Necho? Necho. Necho? I'm just kidding. <laughs> you don't know? I, I, I say Necho, but who okay, knows? Necho. I say Necho. I'm going to say Necho. Uh, is headed north with his, with his army to stop Babylon from destroying the remains of the Assyrian army at Haran. Uh, King Josiah goes to stop Necho for some reason. Uh, Come on, Joe. We don't... There's no reason given. Uh, I've, I read a few theories as I was preparing for this. Um, one of them is the simple, just like, I don't want a giant army walking through my territory. So I'm going to go confront them. Even, even though they're not here for me, they're just, you know, passing through. Um, another one is there could have been a, a leftover alliance between Judah and, and Babylon um, from some decades earlier that was, you know, maybe not so explicit, but, uh, as, as Egypt is, is moving North to fight Assyria or sorry, um, sorry, fight Babylon. Yeah. 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 Uh, partnering with Assyria, um, that Josiah would have wanted to not let that happen because of some potential alliance there. Yeah. Well, it, it could also just be that, allowing an army to pass through your territory is is seen as allying yourself with them. Yeah. Uh, and so we think like, even that's like- what I'm, That's kind of what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, like even modern history, um, or not modern, it's happening right now. Yeah. Think about the war in Ukraine. Um, I don't I don't believe there are Belarusian troops fighting in Ukraine. I could be wrong on that, but I, I, I believe that's not the case. But they allowed the Russian army to basically camp out yeah. and then jump down through the border. Uh, and so no one is thinking that Belarus is- neutral in this conflict. Yeah, like, and so it's kind of, it's a similar thing where um, is Josiah operating under the calculus that if Egypt goes through Judah and is defeated, which they almost certainly would have been, Egypt is not the powerhouse that they were, um, does Babylon then launch a full assault onto Jerusalem because yeah. they, because Judah allowed that to happen. Uh-huh. But like you said, we're not explicitly told. It's not, it's not in the text. It's not explicit. We're guessing. But you know, <laughs> hey, guessing's fun. You know, it's a good time. It is. As long as we, as long as we're clear that, that that's what we're doing. Yes. Uh, Neko says that God told him to hurry and that he's not there to fight Josiah. He's there to fight somebody else. Uh, but Josiah disguises himself and then goes and fights Neko at Megiddo. Is that how you say that? How do you say Megiddo? Is Megiddo? Okay. But who knows? Who knows? Uh, Josiah at that battle is shot with an arrow and is brought back to Jerusalem to die. Big sad. Big sad. We get that brought back to Jerusalem detail from the King's passage, or sorry, from the Chronicles passage. It's not explicit in the King's passage. Um, And then we skip to Jeremiah again. So, hey, right big back, sad, right big back sad. Josiah dies. Um, we're very sad. Josiah was a good guy, um, but now we're in Jeremiah. <clears throat> so, for Jeremiah forty-seven, is more prophecy about Babylon coming to take over not just a couple nations, but we get this picture of an overflowing flood is the language that it uses, um, which is God's judgment on the entire region. Uh, This section uses the phrase cut off when referring to the cities and nations that Babylon will conquer, indicating that they will be completely cut off from any help they would have received from their allies, just like Egypt just tried to help. Um, Chapter 48 here is is more directly aimed at specifically Moab, 
to the east. Uh, Nick actually mentioned uh, the story of Balak hiring Balaam to curse Israel. And at the time, Balak was the, the king of Moab. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a little reference from Sunday. Uh, there were points in biblical history when Israel ruled over Moab, and there were points where Moab ruled over Israel. They kind of went back and forth a little bit. Classic rivalry. Yes. Um, and when I say Israel, I mean United Kingdom, older. Right. Yeah. Not just, not Isra- not Northern Kingdom. Uh, the reason given for the judgment of Moab here is that they trusted in their works and their treasures is what the text says. Uh, Moab was a wealthy nation because they sat right on a trade route uh, and they were isolated from much of the area's conflict. Uh, and this leads to what what's called a loftiness, arrogance, and pride. Uh, they trusted in their wealth, their treasures, rather than trusting in God. Uh, later in the chapter, Jeremiah says that Moab has been at ease from his youth. Again, just referring to this um, this wealth and this, this uh, uh, what, what's the word? Um, contentment, like... Oh, Not in a good way. Like apathy. Almost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with with their their station, um, which which is why they're judged by God because they feel like they don't need God. Um, and this is kind of the same the same idea that we see in Matthew nineteen, uh, verse twenty four, where uh, Jesus meets this young rich man, and the guy's like, "How do I get into heaven?" Uh, and he says, "It's it's harder for a camel." to walk through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Or easier for a camel. Sorry, easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Important, important (laughs) difference. Um, You're right. Uh, That's kind of the same thing that's going on here is it's not like it's impossible for a wealthy nation to please the Lord or impossible uh, for a rich man to please the Lord, but it makes it way harder because you don't realize when you're in that sort of situation where you have a lot of wealth, a lot of comfort, it's it's harder to realize your need for God oftentimes. Well, and even just as, as pastors, it's kind of a bummer because we'll, we'll see this just in, as we go, like we'll have people who are really plugged into the church um, and they kind of, you go through crisis or whatever it is, but then kind of life gets good again. Yeah. And then they're, and then they're gone and you don't see them again. And it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bummer for me because, you know, you're with people, you're talking with them and all these different things. And then you just kind of wonder like, I hope they, I hope they are taking their faith seriously. Yeah. And it wasn't just this moment of like, okay, well now everything's better. So let's, let's get out of here. But obviously, I mean, who knows? You can't judge uh, people's hearts or where they're at and things like that. But uh, like you said, when, when things are good, it is much easier to kind of put God on the back burner in our lives. And it's, it's a big temptation. We have to fight. Uh Little, little application there. (laughs) Dang it. Too early. Uh, Too early. Not ready for application. Um, couldn't help myself. Uh, God also takes his his site here uh, at Chemosh, who was the chief Moabite god. Um, that's not explicit in the text. I was like, who the heck is Chemosh? And then I'm a Chemosh man myself. Chemosh. That's how. I've, but that's what off of Adventures in Odyssey. If you've oh, ever they heard called it Chemosh, that was yeah the Ruth episode. Oh, it was always Chemosh. Yeah. But you know, again, who, who knows? knows? <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Um, Jeremiah talks about. I'll say Kimosh. That like, sounds way cooler. Hey, whatever you Being want, Being taken man. into captivity. 
this is one of the gods that Solomon erects as an idol to when he's uh, kind of in his downward spiral. Which unfortunately doesn't narrow it down too much because Solomon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Solomon yeah I mean, a lot there's idols. a lot, a lot of, a lot of idols. That's like saying that's one of Solomon's wives. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremiah, Jeremiah um, implies that uh, Chemosh will be humiliated, showing how foolish the Moabites were to trust in a false god. Uh, We get to verse 36 through 42. Uh, These are about the Lord and his prophet Jeremiah wailing for Moab. Uh, Despite the harsh and violent judgment against this nation, uh, God still mourns that he must judge them. He's not taking pleasure in this judgment of this nation. Uh, One interesting line here is, uh, and Moab shall be destroyed as a people. Um, Unlike Israel, unlike Judah, unlike the people of God, um, they're judged the same way, but afterwards they cease to exist. True. Yeah. Uh, Where Israel returns after their their exile. Um, And we have very small records of Moabite people kind of throughout the exile sort of existing, but they just kind of peter out as a people and especially explicitly as a nation. It just never exists again. Yeah, this yeah. is their end. Um, which is kind of a, a an important contrast between the way God judges the people of God versus the way he is judging those outside of that that election. I don't want to use that word because that's <laughs> such a loaded <laughs> word. Um, I don't mean it in that sense, but uh, I just think it's an interesting. Well, and how it's reserved as well, because they're, because uh-huh. um, that's not the fate of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Yeah. Well, they do cease to exist as a nation, but the people group does not. Like there, yeah. there are people today who would trace their heritage back to uh, Assyrian or Babylonian or uh, Persian even later on yeah. and stuff like that. So it is kind of interesting to see. I don't remember if, the, is that the same fate of Edom? I don't remember if that's. I don't remember. Yeah. We'll get to that next week in Obadiah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, like you said, it is interesting to look at the even more intense punishment that some of the surrounding nations get because, I mean, they, the punishment for Israel and Judah is pretty intense, but it's, not, it's nothing compared to some of the other nations yeah. what they're going to go through. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from there, we get into uh, another pair of parallel passages. That was a lot of peas. Uh, Great alliteration, though. <laughs> I you. love it. Pair of parallel passages. Uh Second Kings 23, 31 through 37, and Second Chronicles 36, 1 through 5. These two passages cover the short reign of Jehoahaz and then the reign of Jehoiakim. Jehoahaz is a fun name. As, like, it's because Je- it's Jeho- Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakin are like the three. And, yeah. then, and then there's, is it Zechariah? Is he the other one that's not? I don't remember the name of the other guy. Zedekiah. That's who it was. Uh-huh. So, but there's three Jehos that we get in there. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the Jays. Yes. So unfortunately, we've had wonderful King Josiah who's turned the kingdom of Judah back to the worship of Yahweh. And then his son's just absolutely off the rails. Which happens with, we brought this up last week a little bit, but it's weird how that happens with every great king. Because I would say, spoilers for the tier list later, but I would say (laughs) there's three great kings of Judah. And it's David, Hezekiah, Josiah. Um, and all three of their sons suck. <laughs> like, yeah. like they all three, um, like the kingdom is divided because of what Solomon did. It just doesn't happen in his lifetime because again, uh-huh. God's like, I'm giving you this mercy. Uh, and then Hezekiah, his son is Manasseh, who is a, one of the worst yeah. kings. I mean, named, literally named is the reason 
yeah that God Jerusalem, is doing this yeah so it, it, same thing happens yeah exact thing happens again and then Josiah's sons I, I mean they're not as bad as Manasseh but they're just ineffective and it leads to the fall of I shouldn't say it leads because God was orchestrating the fall of Judah um, but they didn't help you know yeah. that's kind of one of the bummers there <clears throat> um sorry where were we yeah Jehoahaz <laughs> was the fourth son of Josiah. Um, He only lasts three months before Pharaoh comes up uh, and and basically deports him to Egypt in chains, uh, puts a tax on Judah, and then installs his brother as a king in his place. Right. Which at this point we can... Judah hasn't fallen, but this is the end of basically their national autonomy. Yeah, their sovereignty is is slipping away very quickly. If it's helpful, you can almost think of this as the state that Judah is in uh, during the time of Christ, where there is yeah. King Herod and they have some semblance of nationality, but they are for sure ruled over they, by they the Romans. They govern themselves, but they don't really govern themselves. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like it's like my wife grew up in Poland. She was born and raised in Poland. It's like Poland while the Soviet Union existed. They weren't technically part of the Soviet Union, but they were pretty much part of the Soviet Union. Yeah, that's Union, a good comparison. You know? Like the the fall of the Soviet Union actually starts in Poland. Um, hey, good for them. Yeah. I mean, you you walk around the cities, you're like, oh, this is this is communism. You know, you look at some of the old buildings and oh, stuff yeah. in, in Krakow. It in is Warsaw. funny how there's, there's that look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, like... you see it. You're like, oh, no, this was a part of the Soviet Union. But on paper, they weren't a part of the Soviet Union. Same sort of thing here. Um, so the Pharaoh, uh, he installs... Um, Jehoahaz's brother Jehoiakim in his place. Uh, speaking of Jehoahaz, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We're back to that. Back to that, which is especially sad because of the, you know, how awesome his dad was. But I guess it's too little too late. Um, Jehoiakim slash Eliakim, depending on which, if you're reading the Kings or Chronicles passage. He's called two different things. I know that's confusing. It happens a lot. <laughs> There's a, yeah, we've been over a few Kings yeah. where that just happens. We, me and Aaron even, we got confused. I think it was like a month or two ago because we were talking about, I forgot which Kings they were, but we literally in the middle of talking realized we were talking about the wrong King because yeah. the name switched on us all of a sudden. Yeah. But Jehoiakim, Eliakim, same dude, uh, also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this was the last straw. This was the final bad King. Um, before Israel is finally, I mean, Judah, Israel's already in exile. Yeah. But Israel, you know what I mean? Yeah. Israel in the sense of the United the people, God people. Yes. God people. Um, which gets us into Jeremiah chapter 22, um, verses one through six is, is the prophet Jeremiah painting a picture of a desolate and destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, it will be so bad that as people travel by there. Uh, they'll basically be like, why has God done this? Because mm-hmm. they see a completely destroyed place. Um, and the people who are, are left will respond with, they've forsaken their covenant with the Lord. Uh, from verse 10, the prophet turns his attention to the sons of Josiah that we just heard about in the Chronicles and Kings passage. Uh, he talks about a guy named Shalom here. You know who Shalom is? Shalom is Jehoahaz. Because that's not confusing. Because that's not confusing at all. Um, he prophesies about his death in Egypt, 
um, he he suffers not a super fun death in captivity. Ugh. The Pharaoh didn't like that guy. He literally three months. He remembers what his dad did. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. That's a bummer. Yeah. Um, from verse 10 on, the focus shifts to his brother Jehoiakim. Uh, Jehoiakim is acu- acu- accused, accused of unrighteousness and injustice, cheating working men, selfishness, building himself luxurious palaces with slave labor. Like, what are you even like... This is a time of crisis, man. Like, what are you doing? He's just building palaces. He's like, this is is fine. It's going to be great. He just, he pulled a straight yellow. He's like, nah, we're we're all going to die. Might as well build myself some palaces. Might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Yeah. Um, And it it talks about when Jehoiakim dies, uh, no one laments for him. Checks out. He's yeah. It, no one is sad when he dies because he's just an awful dude. He only cared about himself. Well, and you think how long? How long did Jehoiakim reign? Did you write that? Down? Yeah, it was eleven years, I believe. So a lot. So most, three months and then eleven years. Yeah. So most of the people of Judah at this point, then, and every adult remembers Josiah. So yeah, we can kind of so absolutely. We, yeah. So this isn't a case of the people have forsaken God and they still hate Jehoiakim. This is kind of yeah. What a bummer it would have been to be one of those people where. You turn back to the Lord and then you see just the horridness of the kings that follow immediately following Josiah. Like, ah, what a huge bummer. Absolutely. We get to Jeremiah 26 here. Jeremiah stands in the temple. He gives a warning to all the people of Judah. Jeremiah Jeremiah says that the city will be like Shiloh if they don't repent. Uh, Shiloh is a city we, we hear about in 1 Samuel. Uh, that been conquered by the Philistines and they stole, they steal the Ark. Uh, and the people thought the presence of the Lord had left when they steal the Ark. And basically what Jeremiah is saying, uh, is if, if, uh, the people of Judah don't turn back to the Lord, the presence is going to leave and spoiler alert. Yep. <laughs> the presence leaves. <laughs> well, but we'll talk about that in Ezekiel. Yeah. 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 Um, but that's what he means when he's talking about they'll be like Shiloh if they don't repent. And they do. They become like Shiloh. That's a great connection point. Um, this makes everyone in the temple really mad, like real mad. And a mob forms and they want to kill Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah defends himself by essentially just saying, these are the Lord's words, not mine, which I'm fascinated that they're, they're like, oh, okay, I guess we won't kill you. I mean, even though it was like kind of like the precedent was these are the Lord's words. And then he shares them and then everyone wants to kill him. And he's like, but these are the Lord's words. And they're like, ah, oh, you convinced me. I, I, again, I think there is like that, not that everyone in Judah is as righteous or as zealous for the Lord as Josiah, but I do think there is that remnant. Oh yeah, like, absolutely. It, yeah. It's people are more, uh, and also, I mean, let's be honest. If there's one theme of the prophets is wanting to kill them when they give bad news. That's, true. that's kind of just yeah, a yeah. universal <laughs> shoot the messenger thing. Which, yeah. Which happens again. Um, this isn't the last time someone tries to kill Jeremiah. There's the reason he's called the weeping prophet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it then shifts to a prophet named Uriah. That's a fun one to say. Who is uh, contrast. His fate is contrasted with that of Jeremiah here. Um, he said all, basically all the same stuff Jeremiah says, um, because obviously he's speaking for the Lord. So they're given the same, the, uh, the same words to say, in a sense here, 
Um, but Jehoiakim has him killed. He just he's murdered. He's dumped in a river, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. It uh, it's pretty quick. It's just like he says all the same stuff Jeremiah says, dumped in a river. Um, and it's, in some ways, he might have gotten the better end of the stick than Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah. He's not having to see the fulfillment of yes. his words coming through. Uh, so you could either say Jeremiah has been given some favor with the people, uh, or you could say it's <laughs> it's like you just kind of implied it's 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 not so fun that he actually gets to live. Yeah, and then that and that's more from God's perspective than from the people's perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was because I would say Jeremiah definitely has a little bit more favor among the people because mm-hmm. they're not going to kill. Him. Yeah, that's what I mean when I say favor. Mm-hmm. Um. Thank you for the clarification. Here in 2 Kings, we're jumping back, uh, 24 verses 1 through 4. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar finally shows up, uh, and he he now rules over Judah. Um, Judah is now kind of a puppet state to Babylon. Mm-hmm. This isn't full exile. This is like pre-exile, but you're not a nation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're still... You're a, you're a territory within a larger empire, I guess yes. is the way I phrase it. And the, you know, it's hard because we don't need to get super deep into this, yeah. but like the way we think of nations today is not the way that we would have thought of them back then. Like it was much more about, um, you're exerting massive influence over sub nations that are subservient to you more yeah. than like, we're the nation of Babylon and here's all of our States. Like it's a little bit different. Like the here's idea- our clear cut borders. Yeah. And here's a, yeah. It doesn't quite work that way. Like that's well, a, because the. The world wasn't as interconnected as it is exactly. today. Exactly. Yeah. The way we view ni- nations and borders is a very, like within the last 100, 150 years yes. as, is when we've gotten to that. A lot of that, I think, has to do with speed of travel. True. Too, yeah. And, and speed of information. Um, a lot of that happens with, uh, <clears throat> what's the thing? What can I remember? Oh, the, uh, yeah. More, you know what I mean? Samuel Morse, who, the, the telegraph. No. Tele- yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, you're right. Is it telegraph? Yeah. Is that what it is? All right. There you go. Telegram, telegraph. I don't know. One of those things. The beepy thing. <laughs> <laughs> the beeps that the we don't beeps. use. That we don't yeah, use anymore. Absolutely. Um, just the speed of information. So you have a king learning about something happening and like, you know, the edge of his territory is going to take forever for that information to get to him. So just. Well, yeah, it's like famously in American history in the war of 1812, uh, the bet, the greatest American victory is the battle of new Orleans. And Andrew Jackson's like, Oh man, we crushed it. And he gets back. He's like, Oh dude, the war was over for like two months when that battle <laughs> happened. He's like, ah, <laughs> like it's, it, it's stuff like that used to happen all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That really puts it in perspective. Um, all of that. The point is yeah, <laughs> borders don't work the same speed of information, much slower. Um, so it's important to remember that when we're reading these passages, um, after Nebuchadnezzar takes over Judah as kind of a, a puppet state, uh, Jehoiakim rebels, but is quickly overcome and destroyed. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Probably not a wise move yeah. on his part. Nope. I mean, nothing he does seems to be all that wise, but you know. And then we have a whole big chunk. We've got Jeremiah 25, whole chapter, 36, whole chapter, 45 and 46. 45, 46 are pretty short, but. 25 and 36 are not. Uh, Chapter 25 is another prophecy about the Lord's judgment against all the nations. It lists a lot of nations. There's a lot of judgment to go around. Yeah. It's a, it's a bleak picture here. Uh, It doesn't sound nice or fun. Everyone dies. Not everyone dies, but you know what I mean? A lot. A lot of people die. 
it it says basically everyone dies. It does it that's hyperbole, but it's not fun either way. It's hyperbole, but not as much as you would not think. Not as much hyperbole as you think it would be. Yeah. Uh there's a lot of that, I think, with the the language that gets used in the Old Testament. Even we were referencing uh Israel moving the people of God moving on Canaan mm-hmm. uh at God's command. Um there's some interesting details in there where we think of complete destruction, but sometimes that language is hyperbolic and we know it's hyperbolic uh, a lot of the time because it'll be like, leave no man alive, woman or child. And then the instructions immediately after the battle are like, okay, don't trade with them. Yeah. Don't take them as wives. So it's like, how can you do either of those things if they're all dead? Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe the all dead language is slightly hyperbolic. True. True. Um, that's just a side note. We get to chapter 36 here. Uh, this is about Jer- how Jeremiah is now banned from the temple. He got himself banned. Classic. Uh, it's like how all those pranksters on YouTube keep getting themselves banned from Walmart and from Taco Bell. <laughs> same sort of deal, uh, except instead exactly of- Exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, except <laughs> instead of being arrested, uh, you probably just would get killed. Um, so he has the guy we mentioned earlier, Baruch, start writing down what he has to say on a scroll and Baruch goes to the temple and preaches it for him the first time. The scroll ends up in the hands of the king who's really mad about it. And there's this, I don't know why I laughed when I was reading this, but this, this very explicit image of the king holding the scroll above a fire pot and he would read like two lines at a time and then just cut off a piece of the scroll and let it fall into the fire. <laughs> I, never, I never caught that You before. never caught that? That's oh, great. I have to find that. It's, that's in chapter 36. It talks about him standing over a fire pot, reading two lines at a time and just cutting it off into the... Don't like says this. three or four. Three or four lines at a time. Cutting it off into the fire and then orders that someone go find... That's funny. Jeremiah and have him He killed. couldn't even read the whole thing to burn it. No, no, no. <laughs> line burning, for line, he's just cutting it off into it the fire pot. Yeah. Um, he tries to go seize Baruch and Jeremiah because uh, he's very clearly mad about what they have to say. So Jeremiah's response is he completely rewrites the scroll. He's like, well, you've destroyed my whole one. Or he has, he has Baruch rewrite the scroll. Yeah. Jeremiah doesn't do his yeah, own writing. Yeah. He doesn't do any of his own writing, um, which is why it's, it, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but a lot of scholars think Baruch wrote all of Jeremiah. Probably. Checks out. Yeah. yeah just because- there's a few prophets where I would not be surprised at all when it's like, because when it introduces the sayings of so-and-so, it very much makes sense to me that there's a scribe following them uh-huh. that writes it all down. And weird side note, but there's a deuterocanonical, or we call a pro- apocryphal book called Baruch. Now, when you say deuterocanonical, is that you, apocryphal? Yes. Both of those? You want to Deuter- get So deuterocanonical is, would be the Catholic or Orthodox. Uh, yeah. That's what they would call that that group of books. It's basically an extension to the Old Testament. All books as Protestants we've kind of discounted as um, not being inspired scripture or maybe being inspired, but not canon or maybe having right. some authority, but not full authority. So we don't include them. They were actually included in the, the, the earliest versions of like the first version of the King James had all of them included oh. in the Old Testament. Um, Early Protestant Bibles had them, but over time we've we've come to consider them not scripture in the same way we consider these scripture. And Baruch was one of those books. So yeah. he, he originally had his own book. And to be clear, that doesn't mean they're bad. 
It just no, 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 no. It would almost be the way that we viewed the church fathers, where it's not inspired scripture, but hey, really helpful. Like it's good to read. Well, and a lot of it, I would even say, would be guided by the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. and profitable in wisdom in some of these things. Yeah, just like the church fathers and some. Absolutely, I love reading the church fathers. It's good times. Sorry, let's get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Um, All that to say, Baruch has his own book. It's not part of the canon of scripture. It's really interesting, though. Um, Where was I in my notes? Chapter 45, I believe. Uh, 36, I think I was still talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeremiah rewrites the scroll, uh, right? Right. Like I said, Baruch rewrites the scroll, but this time includes a prophecy at the end about Jehoiakim dying. Nerds to him. Yeah. So he's just like, you destroyed my first scroll. So now I'm just going to rewrite it, except you're dead at the end. So that's lots of fun. Uh, 45 is a direct message to Baruch. Um, Baruch is really tired from helping Jeremiah. Checks out all of all of these things, um, and this chapter is a call for him to remain faithful and not seek his own good, but seek the Lord, because the Lord will take care of him anywhere he goes. Um, I'm going to be honest. This chapter, I was telling you about this before we started this. I had to read about ten times before I could figure out what the heck was going on. I don't know what it is about it. Maybe I was really tired when I was working on this, but it's it's really confusing. Basically, all it is, though, is a message from Jeremiah to Baruch being like, stay faithful. That's all you really need to know. It's It's worded really confusing, though. I don't know why. Um, Chapter 46, this is another short chapter, is a prophecy of doom and gloom for King Jehoiakim uh, in verses 1 through 12 and for Egypt in verses 13 through 24. He literally tells Egypt to pack their bags for exile. Uh, the, the literal wording in verse 19 is prepare yourselves baggage for exile, O inhabitants of Egypt. Baggage. Baggage. Um, yeah, pack your bags, Egypt. You're going to exile. <laughs> if, if, if you didn't you see all that, can't see this. I snapped. But, well, in like the little shoulder dip too. That's you know, true. It was, a, it was a really sassy snap. Thank you guys you. all missed it if you're listening online. Uh, <laughs> Chapter 46 uh, actually ends on a positive note. So the end of the reading, it's been doom and gloom. It's been people dying. It's been the kingdom of Judah headed straight for exile. It's been, you know, a good king overshadowed, unfortunately, by his uh, his, his idiot sons, son. idiot sons, <laughs> just being selfish turds. I can say that on the radio, right? I think, yeah. Turds, not turds, a is, turds is great. Cool. Self, selfish turds. But the ending of it all, uh, we have a, a call back to Jeremiah's ultimate purpose in um, his prophecies. And this is the words of the Lord. It says, for I am with you, for I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but I will not make a complete end of you. That's his promise to Israel. It's a beautiful reminder. He gets back to Jeremiah's ultimate purpose that he kind of lays out in chapter one of Jeremiah. Verse 10, see, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. There's all the doom and gloom. All of the, you're going to be in exile. All of the, this isn't going to be fun. This is God's judgment. And then the last line to build and to plant. So in all of, all of the, uh, the prophecy about God's judgment on Israel as a people, uh, 
The ultimate reason for it is one to judge, but to build and to plant the seeds of God's mercy at the end of the exile uh, and ultimately in eternity, right? Mm-hmm. No, that's a beautiful reminder, uh, especially as we move into next week and the week after where there's going to be a lot, it's going to be a lot of bummers. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it's a good reminder that, like you said, that God is merciful and that he's going to do something beautiful mm-hmm. out of the ashes of the destruction Absolutely. of Judah. Uh, well, hey, let's get to our next segment. We had a couple kings die this week, so let's put them on the tier list. All right, Hunter, well, this is your this is your first time on the tier list, so let me, I'll explain yes. it a little bit before we jump in. So we might have a little bit of disagreement, so this will be fun for the listeners. Okay. All right, so we have five. I forget all of the names, so... Oh, it's hard. Bad at this anyway. (laughs) Well, we're not ordering all the kings. Okay, just two, just Uh, two of them. So we have five tiers. There's the top tier, S tier. That's the the great kings. The next tier is the good kings. The tier after that is okay kings. Uh, The tier below that is bad kings, and then the tier below that is the worst kings. Uh Uh, And to kind of give you an idea of who's in the tiers, like David and Hezekiah, we have as the great kings. S tier. Yeah, good kings are like. Asa, Jehoshaphat, um, Uzziah, those those guys. Good would be or okay kings would be like Saul, uh, Joash of Israel's in that tier. He, I think he's one of the only kings that make it into uh, of Israel that make it into the good tier. Some uh-huh. of them uh, bad would be just almost all of them, <laughs> and then the worst would be like uh, Manasseh is in there. No, sorry, Manasseh we put in the bottom of bad. Because he repents at the end is how we is how we okay. justified it. Uh, but Ammon, his son, is in worst. Um, I forgot her name, but the queen. Really, who... So Manasseh's bottom of bad, even though he's like named as the reason the exile's going. So happen. and this is where we kind of <laughs> and so we we have to balance out as we as me and Aaron as me and Aaron oh yeah so as me and Aaron do the as me and Aaron do the rankings we kind of balance out um, personal lives and their and the legacy of their reign and so. Yeah. Uh, Manasseh is the he's the very last name in bad tier, but I, I okay. we jumped him up just because, and it's not only that he repents, he also commands Israel or it to commands Judah to way, yeah. yeah exactly. So there's that moment, and we have because we have the same thing with Ahab, where he moves up a few spots, even though he's described as like the worst, he does have repentance and it's genuine repentance where God actually says, look how the, look how he's so repented. How- how does that work with Solomon then? Because that's kind of the opposite. Solomon he starts as a really good. Solomon, we have in the okay category, um, and based- but then I mean he, but he starts good, and then but his legacy is awful, right? You so know? I would I would say that he <clears throat> is a good king who dips all the way down to the bad, but comes back on the upswing, and this depends on if you interpret Ecclesiastes as being written by him or not. Uh-huh. Uh Which we we kind of landed on. We think that that's who is the writer of Ecclesiastes. If that's the case, then he at least has a. A uh, an upswing at the end of the life at the end of his life where he kind of realizes all of the mistakes he made, huh. and we thought it kind of balances out to be that has interesting implications if okay. Solomon is not if he's not the writer of Ecclesiastes, yeah, because that means a lot of the Old Testament was written by a man who died not serving the Lord, which is just I, it's not a problem for me, but it's interesting, but or it's it's a hard thing to think about. You know? Well, and even even then, it's it's I. And we, we, we brought this up a little bit earlier, but it's just the idea of giving a little bit of um, grace to the ancient Israelites. Uh-huh. And because even, even the statement of died not serving the Lord, um, I would I would amend it to say died not serving the Lord the way he 
is commanded to serve uh-huh. him. Because uh, I don't think Solomon ever fully abandons Yahweh as, as God, but he just falls into the trap that so many of the, the contemporaries did of uh-huh. polytheism and, hey, let's bring in all the gods. It's going to be fun, um, which obviously, like I said, is sin. But I think sometimes we, because that's just not a struggle with us. Like we don't struggle with like, you know, Zeus is cool. Like, why don't we bring him in? Like for, uh-huh. for most of us. Our gods are, look much different. Yeah. So it's just one of those. Um, the ones we bring in. Oh, money. Uh, but, and yeah, I, things like that. I, even more complex than that. That's true. Most um, modern thought, the idea that suffering is the ultimate evil, like temporal suffering, suffering is the ultimate evil. Yeah. That's one of the things we've t- I've talked about is I try to not use the word bad when mm. referring to things. I try to use the word painful as, cause I mm. think sometimes we, we misuse when we say bad things happen to good people. We don't mean bad things. We mean painful things. And when we say good people, we don't mean good. We mean saved people. Redeemed, so, yeah, yeah. Redeemed people. So anyway, this is, has nothing to do with the Kings. Because yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you're good. Sorry. Okay. So this our, is how Evan and my conversations go when we're sitting in the office. There you the go. They're yeah. Just all over the place. You're getting a little peek. Uh, <laughs> okay. So two Kings to rank Josiah. I would assume we both are great Kings. Ter, ter, S tier. I, I would say Josiah's solid S tier. Yeah. Now here's he where really we, his only downfall is he just like, he goes to stop a King marching yep. through his territory that's not even that bad so it kills him but like right here's what okay so this is where i'm curious to see if we're going to disagree or not okay i think josiah is the greatest king of all the kings uh and by that i don't mean christ i mean of the kings of israel not including the king of kings right i think josiah is the very top of s tier and my two arguments for that for that are um we are told there is no there was no king like him before yeah i guess three arguments he reinstitutes the passover which none of the other kings had done so he follows the law more closely than any other king had and like you said he does not have a major failure like david and hezekiah do that we're told that we're that's yeah not to say he's perfect or sinless but at least he doesn't have a failure major enough to be recorded in kings and chronicles Uh i guess is the way i would phrase it so which to my knowledge a lot of the stuff david does doesn't end up in chronicles correct yeah Yeah. dave uh kings is a very even-handed look at the life of david chronicles kind of is like oh he was awesome and then they i I shouldn't say it that's Uh that's flippant but i wonder less concerned i wonder if if kings spent as much time on josiah as it did on david which would never happen just because of the significance of David right. as a type of Christ um, and as a, it's kind of the seed of the Messiah, you know, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> if we would maybe see more of that. That could be. So, but uh, as, I guess, do you, uh, as revealed, <laughs> do you, do you agree with my, with this ranking? Do you want to push putting Josiah as one? Yeah. As, I think as one. based on, the information we are given in scripture, which I think is far less for Josiah than David. Right. Um, I, I think that's fair. I understand why you would do that. All right. Next up, Jehoahaz. Um, I think he goes in the bad king. Yeah. You could convince me okay. Je- well, he, is only, he only rules for three months. Right. So it's it's more of a, you're not here long enough to do that much bad stuff. And we're not even told he does anything bad. Just Kirk- that he did what was evil in the sight of the Are Lord. Are we told that with Jehoahaz or does that start with Jehoiakim? I was trying to remember that. What? 
the, did he that he did what was evil. Was evil in the no, Jehovah has it says he did what was evil. In okay, the well then that's bad tier then. Okay, yeah. Okay, we'll lock in. I don't. Need, we don't need to place him among the like other twenty names that are in there. So we'll just. I'll put him somewhere in the yeah, bad tier. Somewhere we'll and smack that. Well, I mean, we just don't. That's the only line we get about. It's like three sentences about Jehoahaz. Right. There's a few kings in the bad tier that are essentially like you said. It's just you weren't here long enough to really. <laughs> to really do anything else. So there you go. All right. Well, last segment for today. This was a little bit of a longer episode, but hopefully you enjoyed it, yeah. listeners. Sorry about that. Oh, it's, it's my my ramblings. Oh, I went for I went for a long time in yeah, the beginning yeah. too. <laughs> you did. All right. Let's talk about it's Evan's fault. <laughs> applications. Okay. So for me, I'm going to go quick because I, I, I couldn't decide between two. So okay. two really quick applications. Uh, number one, uh, I think it's incredible that Josiah goes all the way in his worship of Yahweh, even in the midst of looming disaster. Um, he is He's the only good or great king who is not promised basically that his line will be extended if he does these things. Uh-huh. It's, al- it's already over by the time Josiah gets there. Um, and yet he still stands firm in the face of disaster and worships God because he deserves to be worshiped that way, which I think is a powerful statement. So he's Uh not worshiping God to get things from him at this point. He's worshiping God because it was revealed to him that the people had fallen short. And he sees that Yahweh, even in the midst of the coming destruction of Judah deserves to be worshiped. So Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool. Um, And I guess my second application kind of goes along with that a little bit is Habakkuk trusting in the Lord, even when it doesn't make sense. Uh, Mm -hmm. So Habakkuk has everything revealed to him. He still doesn't fully understand, but Habakkuk 3 is such a beautiful picture of what it looks like to rejoice in the revelation of God, even when some of it doesn't make sense to us, which is the case for all of us. There's things in the Bible that sometimes it rubs us the wrong way. Um, We don't really understand it. But having the faith to say like, this is, this is your word, God, you've revealed this truth to me. And I rejoice in that. It's a beautiful thing. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> I think mine for today has to do with, with how, uh, especially in Jeremiah, we have revealed um, obviously God's judgment that he must punish sin, um, but also his, his mercy in light of that. And that's, that's how we can make sense of, I think a lot of, uh, really, like you just said, difficult passages where it seems like God is being really harsh, very vengeful. I mean, these are literally things he does, the wrath of God. All of these things are an extension of his, his judgment. Um, he must judge the world because he is perfect and perfectly just. Uh, but at the same time, he loves to show mercy. Mm-hmm. He loves to show grace. Um, and I think that's that's true for all of us every day. You know, obviously we've we've avoided in in our new covenant sense avoided the wrath of God. We've avoided the judgment of God because of the blood of Christ. Um, but as as we interact with people, as we evangelize, when people have tend to have lots of questions about the the modern world makes our God out to be evil, right? Um, but I think it's a misunderstanding of what it means to be a perfectly just God. And that looks harsh. And a lot of people take that, that justice and kind of, they view it in light of like an angry dad, you know, like a, an alcoholic dad who just takes out all his wrath and his, his meanness and stuff on his kids. Um, where I think if in our, in, in our evangelism, if we're able to, to show God to be just, it makes sense of a lot of those difficult passages. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. 
Uh, Well, listeners, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There is a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, you know, thank you all so much for listening. And Hunter, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. I had a lot of fun. Have a great week.